everybody. Welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damien Pizzanti. And I'm Katie Gillespie. So this week, we're going to start the show by talking with you, Katie, and also Marissa Harshman, our health reporter. And you guys are going to talk to us a little bit about uh, the story you're doing on early childhood development and childhood education and things like that, right? Yeah. We're both doing some reporting around early childhood education in Clark County. Um, Mm -hmm. There was recently a report that came out um, that discussed kindergarten readiness and Mm -hmm. whether or not kids are starting school with the school readiness skills that they need to succeed. So uh, Marissa and I worked in tandem on a couple of stories. Hers came out this past Sunday. Mine's coming out, um, not this upcoming Sunday, but the following Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, About uh, Hers was about availability of daycare and infant care and child care for um, kids, typically in that zero to three range. Gotcha. So, So, yeah, this is just a taste of all the good enriching content that you guys put up out there. Yeah, so we're, we're doing kind of an occasional series called Early Year. So you'll see in the paper, uh, our, our in-house graphics guru made um, made a graphic of a cute couple of cute little handprints, and it says early years on it. So if uh. you see, so if you see that graphic, um, you'll know it's a story about uh, early childhood education here cool. in Clark County. So yeah, I learned a lot talking with you guys, and it if I already wasn't nervous about the prospect of becoming a parent. I'm really freaked out about it now. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. So don't become a parent, Damien. <laughs> don't <laughs> <Yeah>. have children. <laughs> no. For the benefit of future societies, I will not become yeah. a parent. Same. And then uh, we take a step back and let Lauren take the mic. And she sits down and talks with uh, Representative Monica Stonier just to, to give us an Olympia update and you know give us a lowdown on things going on up there because it's crazy. Yeah. Right so now. currently the legislator is in overtime trying to get this budget passed, trying to get McCleary figured out. So, I mean, it's... It's not a new story from from previous budget years. No, nope. they always go into OT. But yep. Um, and then in the uh, in the last part of the show, Damien and I are again uh, pinch hitting for pinch hitting for Ashley, um, who is out sick today. Um, talk to you about uh, upcoming events this weekend and what you've got going on. So it's a pretty packed full weekend. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we've got Marissa Harshman, who hasn't been on the show in a while, but was in our first episode way back when. Um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about a new uh, sort of reporting initiative that the Colombian is taking on. Um, um, that that she kicked off on Sunday with a story about daycare availability in Clark County. So I know that you, that you worked real hard on the story and it was exhausting, but thanks for revisiting it for, for us. Yeah, of course. So hold on a minute. This is just one of, uh, this is an initiative. Is that what I just heard? It's kind of like an ongoing series that we're going to have kind of periodically stories that relate to early childhood development and Got learning you. and... and um, so is this going to be the kind of thing where like when Brooks and I did the Oil Town series where there wasn't necessarily a story back to back every single week, but rather it's going to be like it's going to show up every now and again with like the same logo attached to it that's like this is part of this. Yes. Okay, cool. And Katie, yours is coming out uh, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after? Yeah, so my piece about this, which is related to kindergarten readiness and are uh, Clark County's kids ready for school by the time they start, um, that's actually going to come out on May 7th. So so this series, this ongoing series that Marissa and I are working on and other reporters in the newsroom as things come up um, is called Early Years. So if you see a little Early Years uh, logo in the paper, then that's part of this series. So. so I guess this is the first of the early years, huh? I just read the story this morning. Man, if there ever was not incentive to have a baby 
you, I feel like you pretty much spelled it out. Either that or I'm just going to move my parents out here so they can take care of our kid while we w- both work all day. Yeah. But anyway, talk a little bit about what you found and what your reporting was on. So the story just looked at um, what childcare looks like in Clark County. Are there spots available? How much does it cost? And um, what I was finding, this this largely looked at childcare centers. There are some family home providers who they're like the smaller places that you know um, a woman or man might operate out of their home and just have like a dozen kids at most. This looked mostly at centers, which make up about 75% of the childcare spots in Clark County. And what I found is infants Uh, which goes up to 12 months, and then toddlers, um, which goes up to two and a half years. One one year to two and a half years are really hard to find spots for. Um, And then when you get into two and a half and older, that's preschool, and things kind of open up a bit more there. But the infants and toddlers are really hard to find um, childcare spots for, and they're very expensive when you do find a spot. So where did you get this information from? So there is a statewide organization called Child Care Aware of Washington, and they're a great resource for people who are looking for child care because they can connect you. They have a database that they um, Mm. have all of the child care providers in the entire state, and they get that information from the Department of Early Learning. Um, and they can then, you know, you tell them what you're looking for and they can do this search that really just hones in on exactly what you need. And so I went to them and they gave me kind of the, they spit out all of the number of providers that are in the county and um, how much kind of the median cost is. And then I went to some of the providers and just talked to them about what they're seeing and how full they are and where they have problems. Sounds like it would be a great tool to find somebody to take care of your kid if there was actually a place open that could take care of your kid. Exactly. Yeah. So is was the premise of your story really that this isn't that we are a generation raising kids where both parents have to be working for one reason or another and somebody's got to take care of like this young child that it's during the day is that what the premise was I mean I think some of it is that there's certainly I mean there's uh in 2015, there was 29, almost 30,000 kids under the age of five living in Clark County. There's only a maximum of 6,000 licensed childcare spots in Clark County. So obviously, these kids are going elsewhere, whether that's, you know, one parent staying home or kind of, you know, um, parents kind of both working but schedules are off that they're able to kind of mash together care or they have a family member or it's someone unlicensed. Um, I mean, so it's not. These, some of these kids are going elsewhere. They're not all going to licensed child care providers. Um, but and, and like you mentioned, that disproportionately affects, I mean, new parents, you know, parents of toddlers and infants. So, I mean, talk a little bit about the, the findings there and some of the, the you talked to a parent who was struggling with finding infant care. Kind of yeah. talk about that experience a little bit. So it's not uncommon um, for women to be pregnant while searching for child care. So um, one of the centers I talked to in March, they had a woman come to them, tour the facility, and put down her deposit. Her child will not be starting daycare until next January, but they know that it's so hard to find spots that you essentially have to be looking for daycare while you're pregnant in order to even find a place that that can take your, your child once they're born. And part of the problem, or part of the issue with that is infant care has a lot more... Um, 
restrictions on the state from the state so there can only be a maximum of eight infants in one room and they have to have one teacher per four infants so it's a much smaller ratio and they have to have bigger space 50 square feet per infant and and when you get a little bit older toddlers it's one teacher per seven kids and a maximum of 14 and then the space goes down to 35 feet well not to mention the individual attention that infants just require mm -hmm. i mean regardless of space and facilities and all that right for safety reasons for just yeah. ensuring they're receiving the feeding, care they need yeah they, they need to have some social interaction sm smaller ratios like that and so over and over again that's what i was hearing from providers is those regulations are, are important, but they make it really tough to provide infant care. And a lot of places I talked to said they lose money on their infant care. You know, they mm. can't even, they charge, infant care is expensive and it still doesn't even cover the cost that it, that it um, takes to provide that care. The shortage of space for uh, child care is less severe as the kids get older. Is that right? Yeah. 24 months on up, so things get a little easier? Preschool, preschool gets a little easier. Um, and, and what I heard was... So there's these licensed centers that offer preschool, but then there's also um, facilities like churches or like part day programs that if they're not um, if they're not having kids in in their facility for more than four hours a day, they don't have to be licensed. So it could be, you know, a church or, you know, Katie down the streets preschool. And and there's so many more options when you get a little older. There's Head Start and some yeah, of the ECAP programs. Yeah, I was just going to say Head Start, ECAP. And those. those things don't exist for infants and toddlers. And so that's part of the reason why it's so tough for the younger ages. Hmm. The, your story so made sense to me when I think about like the changes that are happening in Vancouver and just like the Portland metro area, like a bunch of young adults who are moving here for new jobs and like good jobs and presumably like moving away from that support network of like family mm -hmm. that they had somewhere else. And then, you know, they get married and have kids and then they don't have their parents around or like extended family around to help take care of their kids while they're working all day. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, God, we have to put we have to do something with the baby all morning. We can't bring it to work with us. Mm -hmm. What do we do? I mean, it's just like this seems like such a perfect storm mm -hmm. situation to me. It's crazy. And one thing that that I heard a lot too is the cost of childcare is so much that, you know, there's families who, if they can't afford it, you know, it's likely there's two people working and they're they're able to, you know, in some cases one person might even be working just to pay for childcare, but. There's also families that can't afford it, and there's state programs to kind of help subsidize the cost, but that doesn't even, I mean, that that range for getting help is pretty high. So if you're close to, the, the max is like 200% of the federal poverty level, level, and if you're like right at 200%, you're still paying like $650 a month as your copay. Part of the reason that, that we started working on these stories after um, a couple of local agency release, local agencies released what's called the um, state of uh, state of the child and their families report, state of the children and their families. And it looks at some of the challenges in Clark County and the challenges that families are facing with their little ones. Um, there's all this research that correlates um, between, you know, what whether a child enters kindergarten with those readiness skills, with the skills that they need to succeed in school, and whether or not they're going to succeed into into elementary school, into high school, into graduation, you know, whether they're more likely to to f be 
involved in the criminal justice system, whether they're more likely to, to graduate on time. It's all these significant risk factors. And that report talks about how there is a correlation between access to high quality uh, child care, early child care, and um, and success by those early childhood metrics. So, And one thing that I didn't go into in this story, but it's something that's definitely on the um, to-do list later, is there's a lot of research, research that has shown that brain development, like the most significant period of brain development for a child is that zero to three years or zero to five years. And so if you're, um, you know, having a, a child in an environment that, you know, they're being watched, a babysitter is watching them and just ensuring that they're safe. I mean, that's one thing. But if you have a child in kind of an engaging, enriching environment where they're able to, you know, kind of, um, develop and they you know get the neuro pathways and it, it just makes such a big difference for brain development as they get older and that ties into some of the stuff you know setting them up for future success and whether mm -hmm. they're going to be successful in school and in adulthood so katie that report that you just mentioned um is that what got you guys on the path of this story or was it marissa like your own experience of just being like a new mom well part of it um Part of it, definitely. I mean, when I, so my daughter's about to turn one, and when I was searching for childcare, I mean, I knew, I like some of these people I talked to, I knew you had to start early. I mean, I was pregnant looking for, for childcare, and we were very fortunate to come across the place that we did after quite a bit of searching and lots of waiting lists. Um, but it also, I mean, when I got back from maternity leave, there was also a report that came out talking about the cost of childcare child and how one year of infant care is now rivaling one year of in-state college tuition. And so that that kind of, I did a story on that uh, back in the fall, and then that kind of, that with my own experience, and then this report that Katie mentioned, it just kind of all got, you know, all com coming together at once and kind of got us thinking about all these different aspects and angles. And then there's also a big community push for um, attention to ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and um, Clark County Public Health has made that kind of their cause that they've been championing for the last couple of years, and a lot of local organizations are working on that too, and so that kind of ties into it as well. I know Katie and I have both done stories on that. Something else I was thinking about as you were running through all those figures was um, there's a huge shortage, obviously, of uh, providers. Is there any like movement in more of them being created? Like, are, are we seeing more open up? Is the state incentivizing more like uh, infant infant care anywhere so this year the department of early learning did ask for some um, money to kind of reinstate some of that recruitment and retention they also are trying to get money for um uh, facilities grants so that providers could apply for these state grants or loans to be able to expand their facilities. And one of the big things they're trying to do is get um, the legislature to allocate some money to increase the subsidy rates, the subsidy mm -hmm. amounts, so that, I mean, right now the um, the state, if, if you're a person who receives state um, assistance for child care, you're, you know, the state is paying the child care provider $930 on average, whereas the cost is $1,062. So now, is that per month? 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And so, so they want to try so and much money. Yeah, they want to try and increase that because then it, you know, if a center is losing money providing infant care, they have no incentive or I mean no, just good business they? practice. You can't keep losing money, so mm-hmm. you know they're not going to expand in that area mm-hmm. if it's going to keep costing them. One thing that you mentioned in your story that we didn't talk about is the impact of the minimum wage increase mm-hmm. on on the overall picture of affordability. Can you talk about that a little bit? So. Um, Child care providers, despite how much it costs uh, a parent, child care providers do not get paid very much. Um, the average annual income salary for a child care center teacher in our region is just under $25,000. And so there's a lot of minimum wage um, teachers. And so when the minimum wage increase went into effect, I talked to two different centers that said they had to increase their rates for parents as a result because... I mean, if it adds just these little these little increases add up, and when um, you know you have most of your staff making minimum wage, it it can it can uh, be tough. Another one of the other providers mentioned the um, the state sick leave policy that re- requires paid sick leave, and she had said that that is going to cost her company thirty two thousand dollars to provide. It really makes me wonder what the profit margins in this kind of business are. I mean, they sound from what I, I mean, I haven't, no one went into great detail, but it sounds like, I mean, no one's getting rich providing childcare. I mean, right. the, the center directors that I talked to said, you know, it's all because these are, these are the people that we have, that we hire are people who are really passionate about this work and about working with kids. They're certainly not doing it, you know, to make a bunch of money They're They really care about what they're doing and, and, um, you know, that's, that's why they do it. Mm-hmm. You guys worked, when I saw you guys just around the office working on this to, uh, together to begin with, um, you were really like working like side by side with a story that ended up getting broken into two. And Katie, yours is coming out in a couple weeks, right? So can you tell us what you're up to and how that all ties into this? So my story that's going to come out in two weeks is going to explore um, sort of the next chapter of like once the kids are done with daycare, once they're done with that early childhood care, you know, what, what are they finding at preschools? What is their experience in preschool? And then what is their experience in kindergarten? So um, so I look at um, this data that, that was released by the state um, called uh, WAKIDS, the Washington um, Kindergarten Inventory of Developing Skills. Um, so I don't know which came first, WAKIDS or the, the acronym, but <laughs> but um, but so essentially what that does is it looks at whether or not kids are meeting um, six benchmarks. So that's things like literacy, language, social and emotional learning, uh, cognitive ability, physical ability, math for kindergartners. So what skill, what are they, are they coming in to kindergarten with meeting certain benchmarks in those six categories of skills. So if they do are meeting in all six of those skills, um, then they're considered ready for kindergarten. If they're meeting anything less than six, they're considered not fully kindergarten ready. So there's definitely some nuance to the data. You know, if a kid is meeting only one or is not meeting any of those skills, um, or if they're meeting five and then just need a little bit more help on math or whatever, then then those kids are all put into the same boat. So, um, so my story 
story looks at some of um, some of the challenges of that data, what it means, how schools are using it, um, and uh, just kind of how Clark County is doing as a whole and what risk factors there are in Clark County that may be making children. Because Clark County has, uh, I believe it's 42, 43% of its kids are meeting those skills compared to 47% as the state average. So a lot of kids around the state are struggling, um, but, but my story looks at in particular what kind of challenges there are in Clark County. You're even taking a much like closer examination than just the county level, right? You actually mm-hmm. looked at the individual schools, and um, if I remember right from just some of our conversations, even like the variation between like uh, the the best achieving like kindergarten school or uh, school full of kindergartners in Clark County compared to the lowest achieving one were just like. It was I was really taken aback at the difference in preparation between those two student bodies. Yeah. So the lowest the and and keep in mind, this is not a reflection of the schools. This is a reflection of the circumstances in kids life before they started in, in school, because this data is taken at the beginning of the school year. So this is teachers watching their kiddos in September, making notes, you know, little Timmy says please and thank you. You know, little Susie threw a tantrum today, you know, things like that. So um, but but the difference between the lowest performance farmings or the the school in Clark County that is struggling the most with kindergarten readiness um, has only 7% of its kids are coming in kindergarten ready compared to 87% of of kids at the highest performing school coming in kindergarten ready. So there's a tremendous variation and a lot of it is based on income, on um, on access to affordable housing, on um, you know whether or not mom and dad were around for the first five years or whatever, you know, access to early childhood childhood um, experiences like Marissa's story talks about so um, so that's what my story does so like where your kid where you take your infant and toddler during the day and how much attention that they're given will mean will say very much to how well they're prepared as they're going into kindergarten it's kind of a scary thought to think yeah it is I mean I have a one-year-old and I'm thinking like gosh I hope I'm making good decisions for her (laughs) now so that when she's going into kindergarten you know she's poised to do the best she can and it's just kind of scary to think you have to be thinking about that with a tiny baby that you don't I mean that's like the last thing you're thinking about when you have a baby is like I wonder if they'll be ready for kindergarten but (laughs) it's totally something to keep in mind I guess so um I mean answer this if you guys feel comfortable doing so or not but this conversation that we're having now um has this been one that people I'm sure people were think, have been thinking about this for a long time, but do you think there are more, our standards are so much higher than they were uh, even just a few years ago for having kids meeting certain benchmarks when they're at this young age? Or has, has this always been the case or is this a new situation? When I was talking with the Department of Early Learning, they had said, you know, just in the last 10, 20 years, the the thought around childcare has really changed. It's not, it's not babysitters like like it used to be, or like you used to think. You know, I need a, I need someone just to watch my child. And in the last ten years or so, it's really shifted into more of this early education. That this isn't just you know keeping a kid safe. It's trying to you know enrich their environment and and kind of get that early learning started. And so I know from the state perspective, it's it's you know, somewhat new in the last decade that the shift has really been made. So it's not so much just, you know, daycare or babysitting. 
Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, when I go into kindergarten classrooms, you know, they they look like first, you know, they look very different from the kindergarten classrooms. I think even from, you know, when I was when I was a kid, you know, I mean, they're very much like the new first grade there's certain certain requirements that kids be read or not requirements but there are expectations that kids be reading in kindergarten and that kids be engaged in ways that I think you would more traditionally think of in sort of your first grade model um, another part of this too that is very important to mention is that um, is that full day K is now rolled out around the state so I was so. just gonna say is that's I mean it, it's gone from where like you know a kid might have a little preschool before they go into kindergarten and that just helps you know get them a little bit ready but you're going to half day kindergarten and kind of eases you in and it's really gone from you know half day kindergarten where you're coloring and doing things like that. it's like you've you're hitting the ground running and like these kids are they're all day they're learning they're expected to kind of do different things and behave certain ways that mm-hmm. i i can't imagine were in place 10 20 years ago well i remember you know years ago when i would have conversations with my like just talking to my mom or like hearing my aunts and uncles talk they were all like proud that like we were all reading by the time we got to kindergarten and i feel like now the conversation has shifted to like what do you mean your kid's not reading and they're going to kindergarten well this is i mean super interesting stories you guys i man any new parent out there listening to this really needs to listen to the or go give those a read so your story um came out it was in sunday's paper um and is is still obviously online um and one thing is um there's a a great map um with with uh using some of the data that you collected um that breaks down the availability of providers and types of spots they have by zip code, yep. right? Yep, it's an interactive map um, online that yeah has the, each zip code, how many spots in each age group are available in that zip code. Cool, so go check that out if you haven't done that. So thanks, Marissa. Yeah, thanks. Hi, I'm Lauren Dake, the state and city political reporter with The Columbian. And for today's Olympia update, I'm here with Representative Monica Stonier, a Democrat who represents the 49th Legislative District in Vancouver. Representative Stonier, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. We should remind listeners that one reason you're able to be here today is because the regular legislative session wrapped up on Sunday and um, the new special session, the first 30-day special session, kicked off on Monday. And lawmakers still have the two big items on their to-do list, which is passing an operating budget and solving the school underfunding crisis. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, that means that most lawmakers come home, they get returned to their district, and the key budget negotiators stay up in Olympia until there's some progress made. So what what is that like for you, coming home now and also <laughs> sort of waiting for some some action out of Olympia? So we know that we'll be back for at least one day next week to pass some of the bills that need to be passed in the special session. Bills pertaining to the budgets have to be passed within the the special session. So we'll return for a couple days, a day or two out of each week to get that work done before uh, we hopefully have an agreement at the end of the month to vote on a budget. Uh, So we'll, we'll be kind of intermittently returning to Olympia. In the meantime, you know, I've taken yesterday and today to kind of get my personal life back in order and spend some time with my family and um, you know, get grocery shopping done and things like that. Uh, so, you know, soccer 
carpools and all of the things that I that I do in my personal life. Um, but tomorrow I'll be back at my school at Pacific Middle School, um, getting back to work with teachers and kids. Uh, so as long as I'm in town, I will be doing my regular real day job and um, after school mom job and wife job and waiting for, as you say, the action to start up again. Are you hoping that the next 30 days lawmakers can actually strike a deal on the you know, two remaining big ticket items, the operating budget and what's called the McCleary or school funding crisis. Can that happen? (laughs) I'm cautiously (laughs) optimistic. Oh, politicians Um, love that phrase. Everybody loves that. (laughs) So let's move away from the budget discussion for a moment and talk about what's been called the Student Loan Bill of Rights. This is a bill that you worked on with the Attorney General Bob Ferguson, or kind of at his request, and Mm -hmm. House Bill 1440 really tried to create standards around student loan servicers. Um, It's something that is tied up with a lawsuit that the Attorney General has brought against this student loan servicer, Navient Corporation, which used to be Sally May. And why don't you explain a little bit about the bill, what it aimed to do, and, and you know how it's tied to that lawsuit? Yeah, so I'll set the stage just with the need, first of all. Um, it's no question that people know how much college debt is is just... Um, saddling our young people trying to find work and maybe buy a home or uh, get going in their adult lives after they're done with school. Uh, The problem is so great now that AARP actually put this bill as a priority for them because we have so many people who are later in their lives taking on the debt of their of their um, children. So this is now a generational problem. This is not something um, that we can ignore any longer. Uh, and, and so, you know, that really, I think, begs the question, what are we going to do about it? Uh, so we can talk for a long time about how we need to fund higher education better. We can talk about, you know, accountability for the universities to make sure that students are involved in the budgeting. Um, but in the meantime, we have to do something to make sure that the loan service servicers are acting in good faith. And uh, the Attorney General's lawsuit against Navient is um, one that came because that corporation is not, has not been acting in good faith on behalf of students. So we have uh, students who have complained that they don't get good information from their servicer. Uh, They don't uh, get resolution to um, problems with payment, repayment. Uh, They are are acquiring fees that they don't um, deserve because they haven't missed a payment. Then the interest compounds, and when they try to call and resolve it, they are not able to get in touch with anybody. So the bill puts in place very basic standards of practice for how loan servicers have to Uh, engage with loan borrowers. Um, It puts in place an ombuds position where, um, and that's the part where there's some controversy because that costs money. And as we know, we're in a place where we don't like things that cost money in the state legislature right now. But um, the ombuds is a a person you would call when you're having a hard time navigating and they could track the kinds of problems that students are having, track the resolutions to those and give that good information back to the attorney general just as a result of not only to help navigate the problem for citizens, but also to help um, make sure we have good data about what is getting solved and what isn't getting solved. The bill also requires uh, servicers to put on their own website 
the information um, that you would find at the federal level, for example, when it comes to borrowing and loan repayment. Um, if they omit that information in their documents, then students don't have good information about what is legally um, afforded to them in those options, and that's what they've been doing. So we are requiring them to put that information on their own website so that students don't have to go and find it somewhere else. Um, we want students to have as much information as they can when they're making their decisions about how much debt they're going to take on. What I hear the most about is just the in the inaccess to um, just basic customer service to right. get things resolved. You just want a person on the other end of the line yeah. to pick up. Right. I mean, and I've heard complaints about being on hold for a couple of hours and then the call gets dropped. And when you ask to talk to somebody, the call gets dropped. Uh, and then you start all over again. And, and people just don't have that. I mean, who has that kind of time in their lives right. to sit? on hold for that long. Yes, I know that's a very frustrating <laughs> feeling from personal experience. And I think there's something like 60% of Washington State college students or Washington college students who have an average debt of more than $24,000 in 2015. $24,000, mm -hmm. that's, that's a significant jump, I think about more than 20% from 2005. Yeah, so part of it is the state isn't investing in higher education like we used to. Right, so the student is responsible for a higher percentage of their higher ed costs than they were 20 years ago and decades before that. Um, so we've really dropped the ball there. So the amount that you have to take out uh, is so much greater. Uh, I think that's the first part. Another part of it is just um, inconsistency. So you'll have students that might be able to qualify for a grant or a low interest loan. So they take that on, they go through a year or two of school, but because the cost is so high, they are not able to continue, they have to go back to work. And so then they lose access to that tool again later on down the road. So the fact that people are in school for so many years because they have to stop and start and stop and start, um, whether or not that increases significantly the cost of going to school, it certainly delays the window of time before people are done earning an income and able to buy a home or to enter the other side of the economic scale. So um, I think that has a compounding effect as well. Um, while it may not register in like the cost of school, it, it does register in terms of the economy. Mm -hmm. And this bill did not pass during the regular session, and you were mentioning earlier that you don't think it's likely that it will come back again during a special session. Is that because, um, like you mentioned, the, the legislature really has to focus on school funding, but primarily K-12 this, this session, and, and, or, or what's standing in its way of passing, and will you continue to work on this in the next years? Yeah, I will I will absolutely continue to work on this. We passed it out of the House, so it's over in the Senate. It was heard in the Higher Education Committee. Um, the chair is Senator Wilson, and uh, it did not advance out of that committee. Now, while I think, yes, our responsibility and our focus this session is on higher education or on uh, K-12 education, we can't ignore what all of the other issues that are that our constituents are facing and this is a huge one so i don't necessarily think it's acceptable to not take take on this um this bill but 
but I do feel that, um, you know, we'll see it again in the future and I'll be working with the attorney general's office. And just quickly, you, this is something that you have a personal experience with because this is actually your lo- student loan yeah. service provider. Yeah. Navient. It used to be Sally Mae. Now, you know, in my emails, I'll say Navient and I pay my monthly bills to Navient. And have you had any problems with them or has it? You know, it's been an automatic payment and mm-hmm. I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to it, but, um, so I haven't had any problems, but I'm curious to, you know, if I were to go back into my transcripts and look at, you know, kind of what is there, I wonder if I wouldn't find um, some discrepancies. But I just haven't tracked it that closely because it's been an automatic payment out of my checking account. And the only thing I watch is how close am I getting to being done? <laughs> how close are you getting to being done? I have another year and a half for oh. one of my loans, and I have a few months on two others. So really? we're getting closer. Yeah. Yes, that master's degree is taking a long time to pay off. Really close. You'll have to celebrate that. Well, Representative Stonier, thank you so much for stopping by the Columbian today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to come by anytime. Well, Ashley's corner is sorely lacking in Ashley. Yeah, it is absent Ashley this yeah, week. So, totally. so we're gonna do our best. When last time we did this, um, I know it wasn't as uh, as slick as when Ashley is normally here. But, but you know, I have to say, people should expect that. I mean, <laughs> Ashley I, is inundated in this yes, stuff. Like the yes. weekend edition is like it's is it, Ashley's edition. It's her baby. Yeah. So you're gonna start off start us off with Friday, yeah, right? So what I'll are you talk seeing a little going bit on? What's going on um, on Friday, and then a couple of events that are lasting through the weekend. So, um, of course, if you have been paying attention at all this week, um, A opened up on Monday. Um, Wait, what's A? The the, the casino. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the a Casino up in uh, outside of La Center in Ridgefield. So, um, and it's been a hot mess up there. Dude, all I can't week. believe how crazy people are. So excited to go gamble. So excited. Good Lord. I mean, there was a line at 10 a.m. on Monday. Yeah. Th- so anyway, so if you guys need some good entertainment, go read the Yelp reviews. <laughs> of the casino, <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. And if, if you are one of those Yelpers that reviewed it, and you're listening to the this show i cannot believe the nuance you guys put into that Good i know Lord. there's a lot of work that went into those yelp reviews <laughs> yeah i think they spent more time writing it than they did actually at the casino possibly i digress um anyway there's um a whole and i'm not going to list all of them um if you want to find the events up there um you can go to um alanaresort.com but um but there's a whole slew of concerts and and things going on up there um on friday at 8 p.m um there's a band playing called david foster and mohegan sun all stars um there's no cover charge for if you're 21 or older um there's an event starting at 10:45 on friday called cadillacs for everyone um so there's a, a whole slew of things going on up there so um lots of music and good times yeah apparently um and then if you're looking to stay uh closer into town uh, vancouver public schools is putting on its 20th annual dance festival that starts at 7 p.m it's a free performance um and that's going to be students from I mean, just looking at the, just looking at the list here. I mean, almost every Vancouver public school: Philida, Roosevelt, Ogden, Lincoln, Sacagawea, a bunch of elementary schools, as well as Vancouver School of Arts and Academics, Skyview High School. Good um, lord, this is a dance off. This is a serious, serious dance festival. So that starts at 7 p.m. on Friday. Um, it's a free show, um, and it's going to be at Skyview High School um, on 139th uh, up in 
the Salmon Creek, Florida area. So go ahead and check that out. Mm -hmm. Um, Also happening this weekend, the Society of Washington Artists Spring Show will run um, all weekend long from noon to eight on Friday and Saturday and from noon to three on Sunday. Um, It's a juried art show and sale uh, featuring a a whole slew of different artists. Um, There's also going to be a reception and awards ceremony on Saturday from four to six thirty. Um, there's a silent auction, public voting, um, cash prizes for artists, all kinds of things. So that Dang. is going to be happening at the Water Resources Education Center, also known as the Poop Palace. That is also a free event. Um, and then also going on this weekend, the uh, Home and Garden Idea Fair. Um, you kind of a staple this time of year. In theory, it's supposed to be getting warmer and people are supposed to be going outside. But I guess we'll see if that if that actually ever happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that begins on Friday. Indoor landscape showcase, children's activities, a large plant sale, a mini farmer's market. There's all kinds of stuff going on up there. God, there's so. too much. It's too much. It's, oh, I'm overwhelmed hearing you list off. And that's just Friday. <laughs> no, that's all weekend. Those things are Oh, going those on are all weekend. weekend. Yeah. All right, all yeah. right. So, um, and that's going to be at the fairgrounds. Um, it's free, but uh, do you bring $6 for parking? So like Ashley says, find a buddy with a truck and uh, carpool so mm-hmm. you can go and get some get some plants and some terrible swag time to own garden. a smart car yeah no you can't put can't put anything in your smart car no. including yourself so is that all for Friday are you done that's what, is it I'm my done turn yet? it's your turn okay so um, but only talk about the new stuff though Damien because I just I, I did a lot of your work for you you did I mean you kind of you kind of stole my thunder sorry dude it's okay you just like that guy that's doing the George or the Garth Brooks cover at the Illinois Casino yes. Anyway, man, for those of you that are feeling really philanthropic and trying to give back to the community, you can go to the March for Babies at 9 a.m. And that is a fundraising walk for the March of Dimes Foundation. And, uh, you know, groups of fundraising teams trying to help premature born babies. It's a just a little over a three mile long walk. The registration's at eight in the morning and the walk itself starts at nine. It's gonna be at Esther Short, West Eighth and Columbia Streets, downtown Vancouver. So and donations are encouraged. Those dimes gotta come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then um can I just I'm gonna pause myself and say there is literally stuff for you to do from the moment you wake up to the moment you uh, are ready to go to bed because the next thing that's happening at 10 a.m. is the Pomeroy Farm Country Life Fair and that's gonna be from 10 to 4 on Saturday and then 11 to 4 on Sunday and that's gonna be plants it's gonna be part of a plant sale and traditional activities and crafts whatever traditional means and it's gonna feature bunch of herbs and plants for sale and rows of vendors selling handmade goods you know country life demonstrations so i'm sure there's gonna be butter churning and cows and things like that i hope so now if there is i'm gonna be disappointed i know i hope i'm not setting these people up for heartbreak (laughs) but it's gonna be a pomeroy farms which is at uh 20902 northeast lucia road uh lucia falls road in yakult it's free it's free you can go to pomeroyfarm.org for more info on that uh, the one I would go to, this is my highlight choice, would be the Spring Paddle Festival from 9 to 4, also Saturday and Sunday, and it's going to be Alder Kayak's 25th Annual Spring Paddle Festival. So if you want to learn how to paddle or you know how to paddle, this is the thing to go to for you. There's going to be more than 100 kayaks, canoes, and paddle boards there, and you can try them all out. There's going to be clinics and demonstrations and lake tours. I love to kayak, so I say people go to this. You're going you're gonna to have so much more fun than you even know is possible to have yeah i want to check that out more fun than can fit in a canoe 
Oh. That was, damn, I just came <laughs> up with that. <laughs> when you're on, you're on, but you're not on that often. No, so. <laughs> in fact, I'm usually off. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's going to be at Vancouver Lake Regional Park, way out on Lower River Road. It's free. Parking's three bucks. Um, but then also you can find out more at aldercreek.com at the spring slash spring dash paddle dash festival. Just Google spring paddle festival. You'll find <laughs> it. And then uh, the next thing is the sentimental journey. Ulysses S. Grant's return to Fort Vancouver. Yeah. If you're looking for a little more, um, if you want to get your more history, history on. on. Yeah. And then, so that's going to be at 1 p.m. Um, there's going to be a historian that's lecturing about the story behind Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant's early days at Vancouver Barracks. I mean, really, a, God, a guy of, uh, one of the giants of national history. Really totally. had such early and early and relatively modest beginnings here in Vancouver. You're going to want to know more about that, so go. It's going to be at the Fort Vancouver Visitor Center, um, and it's going to be free. And you can go to nps.gov slash f-o-v-a and learn more about that there and then you can after you've paddled or you've walked and you've bought your plants and you took in some history about ulysses s grant you can go finish the night with a potluck party and a hustle lesson from <laughs> <laughs> so i don't what? <laughs> so i'm assuming that this isn't the kind of hustle where you're like trying to get money from people and no make a quick deal. i think it's like the hustle like yeah the do the hustle yeah uh, but anyway, that's going to be from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. And the Van City Ballroom is going to have a 70s-themed potluck party. And if you're going to this, dress in your best 70s gear. God, I know I've been looking for an opportunity to dust <laughs> off my old 70s gear. Finally! <laughs> and there'll be a lesson on the hustle um, at 7 o'clock. And then there's going to be open dancing at 7.30. Prizes are going to be awarded for the best costumes. Bring some potluck dish. Um, it's going to be at the Riverside Performing Arts. So that's at um, 1307-B, Northeast 78th Street in Vancouver. Um, eight bucks to get in with a $3 discount if you bring some potluck. And you can find out more at van vancityballroom.com. Yeah, so dust off those bell bottoms and, uh, yeah, and, that, and uh, crock pot. Totally. Totally. <laughs> bell bottoms and crock pots. <laughs> that's that's a great Saturday. That's what they should call it. <laughs> bell bottoms and crock pot, potluck and dances on. <laughs> so, God, that, that cool. is so much to that's do. That's a this. lot of stuff. We didn't even tell you guys anything going on in Portland. So No. In fact, we just scratched the surface of things that are going on around here. So if you want to find out more, uh, pick up Friday's paper, and uh, there's events for throughout the week in there. So yeah. get that weekend edition on. Yes. All right, that's our show. Ta-da. How about the madness, you guys, with the Ilani Casino opening oh, on Monday? Oh, my God. That was crazy. You fools out there sitting in eight-mile-long backups to go to a new casino. Oh, my gosh. You know what? Uh, Nigel Jayquist had a really... That's how you say his last name, right? Yeah. I had this re had a really interesting story in Willamette Week. Um, uh, I believe it was last week about the potential long-term repercussions of that thing on the Oregon Lottery. Yeah. And the Oregon Lottery was really frank that they are concerned about it. So, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. and for... I, I Not had, only them, but the Grand Ronde. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hadn't even thought of it until an, the Oregon lottery piece until I saw that story. But mm -hmm. I mean, that's a significant part of Oregon's budget. You know, call me a cynic, but like, I think that 
I, I consider that such a toxic tax to begin with that, like, I say, good. Like, figure out a legitimate way to tax people's income. I mean, lotteries, the people who play lottery are, like, disproportionately undereducated. They are low income. So I have no sympathy for them. I really don't. I don't. I, I actually have a lot of problems with sta- state-sanctioned uh, lottery systems. Yeah, yeah. So, and, that's, and that's totally valid. It's just mm-hmm. interesting to think about the the regional totally so totally no he everything that guy does is really interesting work but yeah it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds for those guys i wonder what is going on on our side of things if the washington lottery system is concerned or not i don't know i mean you know even even if they are like this isn't their this wouldn't be their first you know first time the rodeo no there's a number of casinos there's a number of native american casinos throughout the state so um so i wonder if that's taken a bite out of them i don't know but the other thing that i find really interesting which it kind of surprised me that um this casino opened up i mean obviously they're still they they built it with the confidence people are going to go in there and be gambling and as as monday proved those people are yeah monday at 10 a.m yeah but i've heard a lot millennials and gen xers are much less likely to gamble than mm-hmm. uh, previous older generations are, and in fact, like there's um, casinos are seeing that drop off. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so what they're trying to do is restructure their gaming to figure out how to get people our age in there playing. Interesting. Because Ooh. we don't want to sit in front of slot machines. No. And so there have been some companies that are trying to create gaming systems where it's more like playing like like a console video game. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and those have been tested in a few different casinos around. Las Vegas markets. with you know lukewarm responses yeah because the, the idea with a video game is like you can beat it right but like but the con- the games they're selling still go off casino odds so it's like there's sometimes where it's like it's literally it's impossible, impossible to beat and then you yeah. walk away from it frustrated right right yeah so that's fun that. yeah <laughs> yeah I have I it is not I'm sure there's a lot of people that would say that the stuff that I like throwing my money at and the hobbies that I have are is not a worthwhile hobby but it's just what do you think is your biggest, like, your money-wasting hobby? Food. Food? Absolutely. Food and beer. Going out to restaurants, trying new things. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to cook new things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely food. Mm-hmm. It's my biggest money waster. Hmm. It might be the same thing for me, too, actually. And I don't even do that that often. But like like so many people, I guarantee I could cut a lot of fat out of my diet if I just, like, quit going out to restaurants. Yeah, definitely. So, because it's expensive, like especially yeah. when you're in a couple, and you know you go out, and it's like sixty bucks for each of you to get dinner and a drink and pay a tip. We don't spend that much. Oh. To me, it's like fifteen dollars a meal is like m- as much or more than I want to spend on anything. Yeah, but still, you do that a couple times a week, it adds up quickly. It totally does. We yeah. go to nice places. So, do you? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we'll kind of be watching how that moves forward. So, yeah, exactly. Course, so. so you can find uh, Clark Talks anywhere that you listen to podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Um, and we also uh, post the podcast to the Columbians homepage every Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys know how to get in touch with us if you want to. You can reach out to Katie or me directly and or just email podcast at Columbian.com. All right. See you next tuned. week. We'll see you next week.